Okay, for our first message, it will be brought to us by Mr. Reg Noland. It is entitled, But What Are They Among So Many? Okay, a few months ago, Barnabas gave us a message that was uh, referenced the miracle of Jesus feeding the multitude of 5,000 that followed him. We all know the story. Jesus was as popular as a rock star in his day and had been preaching throughout the land. He had attracted a large following that day. Indeed, over 5,000 people were in attendance on the day. As the day drew toward evening, the people grew hungry, but one boy whose mother had enough foresight to pack him a lunch um, had, had any food. To buy food for this larger group would have cost a fortune, and further, this late in the day, all the shops would have already been closed. So the disciples went out, they surveyed the crowd, and found only that one uh, lunch from the one young boy. As John uh, 6, 9 says, There is a lad here which has five barley loaves and two small fishes, but what are they among so many? Now these small loaves were only about five inches in diameter and two small fishes. This is like a fat lunch is all it was. But Jesus took the lunch from the boy. He blessed it. He prayed over it. He broke it into pieces to feed the multitude. When everyone had eaten their fill, Jesus instructed the disciples to collect the leftover fragments. And they collected, uh, um, and the amount they collected measured 12 baskets full. Much more than the original amount. Today, I want to focus on that one phrase. But what are they among so many? What are they among so many? Perhaps because I had always read this story this, um, from Matthew's version, I never noticed this line in John's account. But it speaks volumes and is in accord with biblical principles that God seems to prefer to work miracles with small numbers instead of the big numbers. If you use the big numbers, people might think they did it of their own accord instead of having uh, nothing, you know, with God's intervention instead. Now, from whence does this, phone, this food come? Think a minute. The only place this food could have come from is Jesus himself. Because he was the only other person that had, con the only other thing that had contact with the food. With the DNA and the molecular patterns of the original lunch, by simply touching the food, Jesus was able to replicate all that food from his own energy. Therefore, the crowd was actually participating in a kind of Passover because they were consuming the very energies of Christ. <coughs> Sorry. So all that food and the 12 basketful of leftovers were transmuted from Jesus' spirit. I wonder, what did the disciples do with all that leftover food? All that leftover spirit of Christ. This principle of multiplying a small amount to accomplish a lot is a recurring theme throughout scripture. Especially if we remember the Lord of the Old Testament is the pre-incarnate form of Jesus. Indeed, throughout scripture, God uses only a handful of people to accomplish a great work. But in the interest of time, I want to cite a few examples, although there are many, many, many to choose from. First example I'm going to use is Gideon's 300. We all know this story as well. God had singled out Gideon to become a great leader or a judge among the Israelite people, but Gideon was 
kind of hesitant, uh, timid, lacking in confidence. So he asked God for, for assurance by giving him three signs. And when he was satisfied with these three signs about a fleece on the ground being wet and the, and the ground dry, the ground, uh, the, uh, ground wet and the fleece dry, uh, several things like that. Uh, <coughs> sorry. When he was satisfied, though, Gideon assumed the mantle of leader and began to choose his seal team with God's guidance from the members of the Israelite army to go up against the Midianites. Go to Judges 7, verses 1 through 7. Then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the well of Herod, so that the camp of the Midianites was on the north side of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, These people, the people who are with you, are far too many me, uh, for me to give the Midianites into, your, into their hand, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, Mine own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. And 22,000 people returned. That's, that's all you who don't have the courage basically get out. Okay? And 10,000 10, remain. But the Lord said unto Gideon, The people are still too many. Bring them down to the water and I will test them, test them for you there. Then I... Then it will be that of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, the same shall go with you. And whom I say, this one shall not go with you, the same shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said unto Gideon, Everyone who laps from the water with his tongue as dog laps, you shall uh, set apart by himself. Otherwise, anyone who gets down on his knees to drink, uh, everyone who... Likewise, everyone who gets down on knees to drink. So the test was, how did they drink water? Did they pick up the water in their hand and lap it like a dog would? Or did they get down on their knees and drink uh, with their hands in, in, on the ground itself? Now, those who were on their knees with their hands on the ground were in no position to fight if they were suddenly uh, surprised by an enemy. But the people who were lapping like a dog could still see uh, around them. So they were more ready, more aware um, who was doing of any approaching enemy. Okay. And the number of the people who lapped, putting their hands to the mouth, was 300 men. But the rest of the people got down on their knees to drink the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, By the, by the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and deliver the Midian, Midianites into your hand. Let the other people go. Let every man to his place. So this small force of just 300 men were about to confront an innumerable Midianite horde. But they could face this giant with confidence, knowing that God was on their side. Uh, Judges 7, skip down a little bit to verses 12 through 15. Now the Midianites and the Amalekites, all the people of the east, were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts, and their camels were without number as the sand of the seashore in, the mul in multitude. And when Gideon had come, there was a man telling a dream to his companion. He said, I have had a dream. To my surprise, a loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian. Uh, 
And it came to a tent and struck it so that it fell and overturned. And the tent collapsed. And his companion answered and said, This is nothing but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, the man of, a man of Israel. Into the, his hand God has delivered the Midian, uh, delivered Midian and the whole camp. And so it was when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation that he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. So, just 300 men against an innumerable horde of uh, people here. And he, uh, what are so few? What are they among so many? David and Goliath. Let's go to that story next. We know this one too. It's in 1 Samuel 17. All, the whole chapter. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. Uh, instead, I'm going to summarize it for you. <coughs> Sorry. Um, sometime after David commenced uh, his role as the court musician, Israel was again in peril at the hand of the Philistines. The army uh, were drawn up on opposite sides of the Valley of Elah, a few miles southwest of Jerusalem. Uh, apparently intimidated by each other, they decided the outcome should be uh, determined by a contest of champions who would engage each other in, co in combat. This was a common practice in ancient times. Instead of having the entire armies fight against one another, each side would select a champion. The champions would go out and fight. Whoever the victor was, that was the people who won the battle, and the other team surrendered effectively. Okay. Um. <sighs> All right. Uh, the Philistine offered uh, up Goliath. This was a giant. This giant, he stood nine feet, nine inches tall. I'm converting the uh, biblical units and cubits into uh, modern feet. Nine foot, nine inches tall. That's three and, a half, three and three quarters feet taller than most of us around here. Uh, uh, but Israel could find no one worthy, not even Saul. And Saul was head and shoulders above everyone in Israel. Um, Goliath wore a bronze helmet and had a coat of scale armor weighing 5,000 shekels, about 125 pounds. Um, and he had bronze grease. His, uh, he was armed with a bronze javelin and a long spear with a 15-pound iron tip. Uh, at last... Uh, David heard of the dilemma, and having been sent from the camp of Israel with provisions for his brothers, he begged Saul to let him take on the Philistine. Uh, reluctantly, Saul agreed, and David, armed only with his confidence in God, a sling and five smooth stones, slew Goliath and brought back his, uh, his severed head in triumph. Now, a question you might ask, why did he take five stones? Why did he take five stones? Did David lack faith? Quite the contrary. Goliath of the giant tribe of Anak in Gath had four brothers who were also giants. And here's the references to make sure, sure of that. 2 Samuel 21.16 says, Then Ishbi Binab, who was one of the sons of the giant, the weight of whose bronze spear was 300 shekels, who was bearing a new sword, thought he could kill David. That's the first one. Second uh, Samuel 21:18. Now it happened afterward that there was again a battle with the Philistines at Gob, and then Sebekai the Hushai, uh, Hushai killed Saph, 
S-A-P-H, who was one of the sons of the giant. Now this giant that they're referring to is actually the father of Goliath. Goliath and these four are their brothers. So there was some kind of giant, the Jews simply known as the giant of Gath. Uh, and he had the five sons. Okay, the thir third son, uh, in 2 Samuel 21, 19. Again, there was a war at Gob with the Philistine, where Elhanan, the son of uh, Jerath Oregon, the Bethlehemite, killed the brother of Goliath the Gittite, whose, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. That's huge. Uh, the next one, 2 Samuel 21, 20. Yet again, there was war in Gath, where there was a man of great statue who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number, and he also was born to the giant. Okay, and then the 2 Samuel 21, 22 sums it up. These four were born to the giant in Gath and fell by the hand of David or by the hand of, uh, or by the hand of his servants. Okay, so there were five giants there. Goliath had four brothers, effectively. They're all born to this giant of Gath. That's why he had five stones. One stone per giant. Isn't that confident? Okay, so rather than showing a lack of faith, David, by selecting just five stones to slay the five giants, showed ultimate faith with only one rock allocated for each giant that was likely to show up. Okay? Another story of, of a few. Joshua and Caleb. Do you remember this story? God had instructed Israel to go forth and take the land of Canaan. The original plan did not have them wandering in the desert for 40 years. So Moses sent 12 spies into Canaan for intelligence about what they were up against. Ten of the spies gave a report that was filled with trepidation. For although the fruits of the land were great, the inhabitants were fearsome giants of the tribe of Anak. Um, only Joshua and Caleb had the faith that with God's help they would conquer and possess the land. We read the report in Numbers 13. So this is the report that came back from the, uh, from the 12 spies that were sent out. Numbers 13, 25 through 33. And they returned from spying out the land after 40 days. They departed and came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Parham and at Kadesh. Um, and they brought back word to them uh, and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. So when they, when they brought this in, they were carrying huge um, clusters of grapes so big that they had to carry it in with two people uh, uh, and a staff between them and the grape hanging from, from in the middle. I mean... Everything was big back then, not just the people, not just the giants, even the fruit. <clears throat> okay. And they told him and said, <coughs> sorry. <coughs> and so we, we went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey, and this is the fruit. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites, the Jesuits, the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea along the banks of the Jordan. The, then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are able to overcome it. 
But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through... The the land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in, in it are men of great stature. There, are, there we saw giants. The descendants of Anak came from the giants. And we are like grasshoppers in their own sight. And we were, and so were, and so we were in their sight. Okay, so here's the report that they came back. Ten of the, ten of the uh, twelve spies that went out said, this is too much. We can't do it. it, 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 it the, the people are too big. Yeah, they've got great resources there, uh, great fruits of the land, uh, wonderful things for us to take, but it'd be difficult. We'd likely lose a lot of people. Only two of the twelve spies, Joshua and Caleb, gave a positive report. Uh, we see the reward of that in uh, Numbers 14, 36, and 38. And when the men of, now when the men whom Moses sent to spy out the line, who returned and made all the congregation plain, complained against him, that's Moses, by bringing a bad report of the land, those men who brought the evil report about the land died by the plague before the Lord. But Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh remained alive of all the men that went, who went to spy out the land. So, then with Joshua in command of a relatively small army, notice again the relative size of the people. You've got a small army of the children of Israel going up against the entire armies of all the land of Canaan. Israel begins the systematic conquest of Canaan, one after one. The wall cities fall. The land that God gave to Abraham is returned to its rightful heirs. First, Jericho fell, whose, survivor, whose only survivors were Rahab the harlot, who had sheltered the two men, the two spies and her family. And then fell Ai, uh, after a short setback due to the sin of Achan. Uh, word of these two conquests was so intimidating that Joshua took most of the uh, remaining cities without much resistant, entering into treaties with, of coexistence with some of them, the Hittites and the Gibeonites in particular. All others that they did not utterly destroy remained there as thorns in their side. So God told them to go out and just, just take the land, but in that they did not, that they left behind, remained to be thorns in the side um, in, in the future history. Conquered sites included sites on the coastal plains, the, the foothills, the central plateau, the Jordan Valley, and the Transjordan Plateau. No area was totally bypassed. Even the giants of Anakim were reduced to three cities, the three cities of the Philistines, which were Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod. Indeed, a small amount, a small amount of something empowered can work wonders. Luke records that Jesus compared it to a grain of mustard seed and, and a bit of leaven. This is in Luke 13, 18 to 21. Then he said, what is the kingdom of God like? And what, to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and put in his garden, and it grew and became a large tree. And the birds of the air nested in its branches. Now notice what this is. This the mustard seed is the smallest seed of the great trees. But it, it, it's a tiny little thing. But it grows into this great tree with gnarled branches and, and tough, tough uh, trunk and uh, bark wood. 
um, it produces one of the strongest, toughest trees and is uh, productive and enduring. Continuing, um, and he, again he said, To what shall I liken the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal until it was all leavened. Okay? Likewise, the Apostle Paul tells us, uh, Galatians 5, 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Okay, leaven is basically a yeast cell at this time. Uh, it reproduces by binary fission, which means that each yeast cell splits, divides into two. Then each of those split and divide into two. Each of those split and divided by two. This is exponential growth, is what it is. It's binary fission. In terms of the, if we were to look at this in terms of a disease, for example, uh, if each person in the chain contacts only two people, each of whom then contacts only two people, before long we would have a huge number of persons infected. After only 10 such contacts, there would be 2,047 persons infected. After 15, 65,535 persons would be infected. After 20 such contacts, 2,097,151 persons infected. And after just 30 contacts, just 30 contacts, 2,147,483,647 persons would be infected. Such is the power of exponential binary growth. Very, very powerful. Now, instead of thinking of it in terms of disease and other things, let's consider a positive example. If each person had a positive influence on only two other persons, and then those two had a positive influence on two other persons, just two, just two, the same numbers would apply, but this time in a, in a positive sense. So then after only 30 such influences, over 2 billion persons would have been positively affected. Imagine if that positive influence were the spread of Christianity. Just two persons each time. Christianity began with less than 20 followers, uh, included Jesus, the apostles, Luke, Mark, Paul, Barnabas, Silas, but has now grown into be one of the uh, four major religions on the planet. So God can work wonders with a small force of the faithful. However, as we well know, the children, uh, the children of Israel were not always faithful, and God allowed them to be almost destroyed on several occasions. Nevertheless, he always reserved to himself what? A small group, a remnant of the people with which to rebuild his people. Ezra 9, 7 through 8. Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been very guilty, and for all our iniquities, we, our kings, our priests, have been delivered into the hands of the kings of the land, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, to humiliation, as it is this day. And now, for a little while, grace has been shown from, our, from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a peg in his holy place, a place to hang your coat, effectively, and that our God may be may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in, his, in our bondage. The prophets in exile, particularly uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, Hosea, Joel, and others, in particular held on to the hope that 
despite his rebukes and chastisement, God would not abandon his chosen people completely, but would preserve a remnant for the future. Um, let's look at several of those examples. Uh, Ezekiel 6, verses 1 through 10. Now the Lord uh, came to me saying, Son of man, set your face toward the mountains of Israel. Remember today, uh, we are Israel. Just remember that. The, the United States and the Br and British Empire particularly. Same two flags that were burned last night. Son of man, set your face toward the mountain of Israel and prophesy against them and say, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord uh, God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains, to the hills, to the ravines, and to the valleys. Indeed, I, even I, will bring a sword against you. I will destroy your high places. Then your altars shall be desolate. Your incense altars shall be broken. I will cast down your slain men before your idols. I will lay the corpses of the children of Israel before their idols. I will scatter your bones all around your altars. In all your dwelling places the city shall be laid waste. The high places shall be desolate so that your altars may be laid waste and be made desolate. Your idols may be broken and may made to cease. Your incense altars may be cut down, and your works may be abolished. The slain shall fall in your midst, and you will know that I am the Lord. Yet I will leave a remnant so that you may have some who escape the sword among the nations when you are scattered throughout the countries. Then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations where they are captive, because I was crushed by their adulterous heart which was departed from me, by their eyes which play the harlot after their idols. They will loathe themselves for the evil which um, they committed in their abomination. And they will know that I am the Lord, and I have not said in vain that I would bring this calamity upon them. Joel 2. Verses 28 through 32. Again, there's hope of the remnant. Of the terrible things coming, but there's a remnant afterwards. Uh, Joel 2, verses 28 to 32. And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also my men servants and my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon into blood, before the great and awesome, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance. As the Lord said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. Again, notice he always reserves a small portion to himself. Uh, Jeremiah 23, 1 through 4 picks up the same theme. Woe to the shepherds who destroy, and uh, remember shepherds are your leaders. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel against the shepherds who feed my people. You have scattered my flock, driven them away, and not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for the evil of your doings, says the Lord. But I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them. And I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and increase. I will set up 
shepherds, implied good shepherds here, over them who will feed them, and they will fear no more, nor be dismayed, nor shall they be lacking, says the Lord. Okay, Isaiah uh, 65, um, uh, 8 and 9. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster in, of grapes, and one says, destroy it not, for a blessing is in it, so will I do for my servants' shape, that I may not destroy them all. I will bring forth a seed, that's again a small group, out of Jacob and out of Judah, an inheritor of my mountain. Mountains, by the way, here is a metaphor for countries or nations. And mine elect shall inherit it, and my servants shall dwell there. Paul echoes these same ideas, the messages of Hosea and Isaiah, in his letter to the Romans. So let's look at Romans 9, uh, verses 25 and 29, for a New Testament example of this. And he says also in her, and as he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people, lo Rama, as, uh, as Hosea said it, who were not my people, and her beloved who was not, uh, not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it, where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called the sons of the living God. Isaiah also cries out um, concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant will be saved, just a small amount. For he will finish the work and cut, cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of the Sabbath had left us um, a seed, we should have become like Sodom, and we should have been made like Gomorrah. That's an echo of Isaiah 1.9. Likewise, Peter echoes the words of Isaiah in his first letter. First um, Peter 2.9-10. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. And that doesn't describe us. I don't know what does. That you should show forth the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light, which in times past were not a people, but now the people of God, which had, which had not obtained mercy, but now had obtained mercy. God calls us by very pet names, if you will. He calls us his little flock, a remnant, my elect, a seed, my people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, all of these are pet names, terms of endearment that he would not see us perish. So the second Peter uh, 3, 9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some would count slackness, but he is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any of us should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But if we were left to our own wiles only, we would surely destroy ourselves. Fortunately, for the sake of the elect, a relatively small number, uh, in the population of the world, God will cut short the desires of men and save us from ourselves. We all know from Matthew 24, the that Prophecy, uh, verses 21 and 22, For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there would be no flesh saved, Moffat adds, alive. But the elect's sake, for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Further, as we approach the end of days, the time right before the end, when Christ returns, for we know 
what will, we know that we will become the target of Satan and his minions. Revelation 12, 17 tells us that. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and had the testimony of Jesus Christ. The Jews keep the commandments, but they don't have the testimony of Christ. Okay, we are the people that do both. So what do we do now? Do we cower in fear of what tomorrow may bring? During the tribulation, when things get really bad, we will be the few among the many who have hope for the future beyond the great day of the Lord. The few who can provide some answers to a directionless world. We will be the candles in the darkness, beacons to guide the others home. And remember, light shatters the darkness for as long as it burns. But there's the catch. But darkness is infinitely patient and happy to wait for the light to burn out. Stay lit. We read Luke's record of Jesus' words for encouragement. I'll leave on this point. Uh, Luke 12, 28 through 34 tells us, If God then so clothes the grass, which, is, which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. For all these things the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knows that you need these things. But to seek the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. Do not fear, little flock. Notice again that pet name for him. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourself money back which do not grow old. A treasure in the heavens that does not fail. Where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We may be a few among a many, but that does not mean we're insignificant.